Today's scripture reading is the book of John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Please stand for the reading of God's word. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how are your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, that they would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did, uh, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, would you, uh, and you would not listen. Why do, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. 
We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why is this an amazing thing? You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Uh, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but uh, if anyone is a worshiper of God and does, not, uh, and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a male born blind, uh, man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and why would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is God's word. If you have your Bibles, uh, please keep them open to John chapter 9 as we pray together this morning. God, we ask, uh, we have a simple request this morning, that as we open your word, uh, that you would give us uh, the truths that are in it, that you would allow us to receive wisdom from your word this morning, uh, and Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear your voice as we read and consider John chapter 9 today. Be with us, Lord, we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Years ago, <clears throat> uh, Jessica and I were traveling together, and we were in Spain. And we were traveling to a, a town that we had never been to before, and we arrived by train late at night, and we set out from the train station for the hotel that we had booked online. At the time, we had smartphones, um, but it would have cost us a fortune to use them outside the United States, and so we had come up with a bulletproof plan. We had printed off pages and pages and pages of maps from Google Maps of the town uh, that we could use to navigate. I had planned ahead, knowing that we would need to find our way after we arrived, uh, but the maps that I had printed Weren't, at all, weren't all at exactly the same scale, and they were hard to keep in any sort of reasonable order. Thinking back now, I'm sure it was a comical sight for anyone that saw us. There we were in the middle of the night, dragging our luggage around the streets of this town in Spain and shuffling through 30-some-odd loose pages of maps. I'm sure it won't come as a surprise to any of you that we were hopelessly lost before long. So my plan did not work in exactly the way that I thought that it would, and if I'm honest with you this morning, it, it wasn't a very good plan to begin with. I think we've all had experiences like that in life where we realize that we don't know where we are and we don't know which way to go to figure things out. When we realize that we're stumbling around without a clue about whether we're getting any closer to our goal or actually getting further and further away. Moments when we realize that we are utterly and completely lost. It's an uncomfortable feeling, of course. No one likes feeling helpless. But it is ultimately better, it's safer, for us to face the facts than it is to say, I'm not lost, I never get lost. I have a perfect sense of direction, and I can figure this out. 
It's safer to face the facts and accept that we are lost. The passage we're looking at this morning has everything to do with facing the facts, even when it's uncomfortable for us to do so. This morning, uh, we are changing up our pace a little bit. For those of you who have been hanging out with us for the past several weeks, you'll remember that we took about a month to work through chapter 8 of John's gospel, and this morning we're doing all of chapter 9 in one shot. Um, and as I was studying this week, I, I realized, I think, a little bit more and a little bit more, how, you know, how perhaps overambitious that was. Uh, we are changing up our pace a little bit, and while that means uh, that we're not going to be able to dig into every detail that this chapter offers us, it does allow us to more easily see this chapter as a whole, the way it was originally meant to be read and understood. And it allows us to see how this chapter functions as a whole in a response to chapter 8. Because that's really what this is. Chapter 9 of John's Gospel is meant to be read and understood right next to, in light of, and as a response to the things that we saw unfold in chapter 8. I say that because the opening of both chapters makes a similar statement. Jesus makes the same claim about himself. In chapter 8, verse 12, which is really the first verse of that chapter, Jesus announces to the crowd in the temple where he is with this uh, group that has gathered for a religious festival. He says, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here, in the opening of chapter 9, he says again, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is revealing the very same thing about himself, but each chapter displays a very different response to those who hear it. The crowd in chapter 8 denied Jesus, argued with him, and by the end of the conversation, the scene has turned violent, and the crowd is looking to stone Jesus to death. It's about as bad as any conversation could possibly go. However, here in chapter 9, the chapter ends with worship. The text is laid out for us in such a way that the contrast is vivid, it's evident, and I think it is significant. Some hear Jesus' word and reject him, and others hear Jesus' word and rejoice in him. And this passage reveals to us why people respond so differently to Jesus. The scene opens as Jesus exits the temple and walks away from the violent mob that has formed there. And verse 1 says that as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This is probably not an uncommon thing to see for a couple of reasons. The first is obvious that issues of blindness in the ancient world were more common than they are today. Ancient medicine did not have answers for most issues that had to do with people's eyes and the things that they often did try made the problems worse more often than not than better. Second, though, it's easy to take for granted that poor eyesight was an absolutely debilitating condition in the ancient world. Some of you know that my eyesight is pretty bad. I, I don't wear these glasses just because of how ruggedly handsome they make me look. I, I desperately need them. I know that there are people in the world who have stronger prescriptions than me, but the fact is that my eyesight is bad enough that if I lived in the ancient world or, or, or even in certain parts of the world today where I didn't have access to glasses like these, I wouldn't be able to really have a job or work at all. Um, it would be very difficult for me. I wouldn't be able to read or write. Um, lastly, though, the last reason this was probably a, a more common issue was that the temple gate was a common place 
for people in need to gather to solicit the charity of people who were leaving the temple, especially during a religious festival like the one that has just ended in Jerusalem. The temple gate is likely crowded at this moment with people who are hoping to receive a few coins from the masses who are flooding out of the temple court. The concentration of people in need in this scene is likely what prompted the disciples to ask this, the question that they ask in the opening of chapter 9. Jesus has stopped. He's considering this blind man, and the disciples are looking around at all of these people in need, and they ask a simple question, why? Rabbi, they say, referring to Jesus as their teacher and the one who they think, they trust, can bring reason and understanding to all of this suffering. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he has been born blind? It was a prevalent understanding in ancient Judaism and has been throughout all of human history that suffering must be explainable somehow, perhaps by some karmic force of justice that hands out hardship to people who deserve it for some terrible thing that they've done in their past. And while it is certainly true that some hardship and suffering comes into our lives or into the lives of people around us as a result of poor choices that we have made, it's dangerous for us to assume that we can rationalize all suffering that way. In his book on a biblical understanding of suffering and hardship, Don Carson is quick to point out that all suffering, every part of it, is the result of the sinful corruption of the world in which we live, corruption which every single one of us has contributed to. And so consequently, he writes in his book, this does not mean that every bit of suffering is the immediate consequence of a particular sin. That is a hideous piece of heresy capable of inflicting untold mental anguish. There certainly are sins that invite suffering into our, into our lives. If I decide to, to drink and drive and crash my car, that decision might bring an absolutely incalculable amount of suffering into my life and into the lives of others. But it often is simply just not black and white like that. Even though we want to rationalize suffering, Jesus corrects that way of thinking in this passage. Sometimes cause and effect are evident, but not always. Sometimes there is no discernible cause that we can understand. When a hurricane strikes or drought afflicts a whole region, when a river runs out of its banks, when newborn babies struggle with health complications, when there is no discernible cause to lead to such an effect, no sin that we can point to to make it just. Jesus makes clear in his response that what is most critical is not a sinful cause but a divine purpose. It was not that this man sinned, or his parents, Jesus says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God is at work, and he has sovereignly ordained this moment and the encounter that is about to take place between this blind man and his son. There is a divine purpose in this man's suffering to reveal the glory and the divinity of his son and to draw this man into relationship with himself and to uncover the spiritual blindness of those who reject Jesus. What is most essential, most critical, and most decisive is divine purpose in suffering because God is at work in all of it 
for our good and for his glory. Jesus knew, I'm certain, and understood the truth of Romans 8.28, which had not yet been written when this scene is taking place, but he knew it anyway. And Romans 8.28 reminds us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is at work in all suffering, in all hardship and affliction. There is divine purpose in all of it. Regardless of whether or not we can point to a cause or not, he has a purpose for all of it. And for those who love God, that is ultimately good news. For those who follow Christ and have been adopted into God's household, that purpose is for our good always. That is most evident to us and most vitally true when we consider the crucifixion of Jesus himself. Certainly, there were human causes that led to Jesus' death. There were human decisions made that led to the crucifixions, the crucifixion, period. But what was most decisive and most essentially true was a divine purpose, God's sovereign will to bring it about for the good of those whom he has called to faith. There is a divine purpose behind every single thing that happens. Not simply a divine response, but a divine purpose. This man has not suffered for nothing, and nor is his affliction attributable to some mistake in his past, but so that God's good purpose might unfold. Jesus knows that, which is why he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. We, we must carry out this divine purpose that has been appointed for this, for this moment. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Throughout this gospel, Jesus' miracles are referred to as signs because they point to something. They reveal something, some truth about Jesus. And Jesus knows that God has purposed this man's blindness to reveal glory and grace, to image the light that has come to break through the darkness. Ultimately, Jesus corrects his disciples' misunderstanding of human suffering by revealing to them that God is sovereign and purposes all of our suffering, all human suffering, for our good and for his glory. And we should face the fact that that statement is not a comfort to everyone. Try going to Beirut right now to tell people there that everything happens for God's good purposes, even devastating explosions. Try telling someone in Cedar Rapids right now, where a terrible, terrible storm destroyed most of the city just a few days ago, that it's okay because, because God has a good reason, a good and divine purpose for sovereignly ordaining that event to take place. Try telling someone who's on a ventilator in an ICU, who's sick with COVID-19, that God is at work and he has a divine purpose. For many, it is a cruelty that Jesus would say such things, that he would suggest that God ordains our suffering for his good purposes. And it would be, it would be a cruelty if what he purposes were not infinitely more valuable to us, if what he intends to give were not infinitely better than what we lose. It's the reason the psalmist can write in Psalm 63, your steadfast love, Lord, is better to me than life itself. 
or that Paul can write in Philippians 1 while he's imprisoned and knowing that he may never ever be a free man again, that he has been imprisoned for preaching the gospel and for being faithful to God's call in his life, knowing that he will likely be executed for that obedience. It's why he can say in that imprisonment, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is something that is even better than a lifetime that is free of blindness or free of the pain of a citywide destruction or the fear of a deadly virus. And it is knowing God in the redemption of his son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus proceeds to carry out the divine purpose of this man's affliction by healing it. He spits in the dirt and rubs some of the mud on the man's eyes and sends him to go and wash off the mud in a pool somewhere else in the city. Afterward, the man comes back seeing, and the community falls into utter disarray. People are confused. And beginning in verse 8, four scenes unfold as an invest- investigation gets underway. Just as the disciples wanted a rational explanation for this man's blindness, the crowds that now see this man who used to be blind want a rational explanation for his new ability to see. First, the community who knows him asks what's going on, and they ask, isn't this the man who used to beg? And while they're going back and forth, the man keeps on saying, hey, uh, hello, yes, that's me. I'm the man that you think I am. I'm the guy. I used to be blind. That's me. I think it's funny that John tells us he, he kept on saying that, like he's trying to get their attention. They, they couldn't be bothered to listen to the person they're talking about um, because they're having their own conversation. They want to know how it is that he can see. So he tells them exactly what happened. Jesus made mud and he put it on my eyes and he told me to go wash it off and then I could see. But they aren't satisfied with his answers and so they get the Jewish religious leaders involved. And they also ask what happened and the man says for a second time, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I can see. They press into a theological issue that now they've noticed, which is that Jesus did these things on a Sabbath. We've already seen controversy about Jesus' healing on the Sabbath in the book of John, so we know they're not going to be happy about that. And the confusion intensifies, and some say, how can someone who is a sinner do such things? They simply don't know what to make of this situation. And John tells us in verse 18 that they simply did not believe the story that they were hearing. They assume that someone must be lying. The man must not have been born blind in the first place. So they bring in his parents to question them, and they say, we know that this is our son who was indeed born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. John tells us that they don't want to take a firm stance because they are afraid. They know that anyone who sides with Jesus or affiliates with Jesus will be cast out of the community in the synagogue. They are afraid. Their fear, I think, makes sense, but John doesn't mention it to make them look bad, I don't think. I think John mentions it to highlight their son's utter fearlessness. Throughout this passage, the man who had been blind has not hesitated once to speak the truth that he knows about Jesus. And as he goes, we see his understanding grow. In verse 10, he says that the man who helped him was the man, Jesus. And then in verse 17, he says he is a prophet. 
His estimation of or understanding of Jesus has shifted, deepened, from simply a man who's walking by to a prophet, one empowered by God to do God's work. And then in verse 33, he proclaims that Jesus is from God, a comment that provokes an angry response from these Jewish leaders. He is seeing more and more of the truth of Jesus' identity. And throughout the passage, these Jewish leaders are revealed to see less and less and less. And then by the end of the passage, in a conversation with Jesus himself, the man who was blind declares, Lord, I believe. And then he falls before Jesus in worship. Throughout this whole ordeal, the man who was blind has known exactly what his parents knew that there would be a cost for associating with Jesus. Yet, as the situation has intensified, he has been bold at every step to witness to the sign that Jesus performed. In the end, it does cost him what he thought it might, what his parents feared it would, and he is cast out of the synagogue and the Jewish community. I think that's maybe a bigger deal than we probably realize in Jerusalem, to be cast out of the synagogue was, being, was like being cast out of society. It would, like, it would be like having your citizenship revoked. Yet even knowing what was at stake, this healed man does not back down. Instead, he raises the stakes. When the Pharisees suggest that Jesus is a false teacher and that they don't know about his background, he replies, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where the man comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know, we understand that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Though he doesn't have any theological training, probably any education at all, he takes these religious scholars to school simply by looking at the situation logically, and he fearlessly speaks the truth at every turn. Yet what's most interesting to me in this passage is not that he speaks the truth. That part I don't think should really be all that amazing to us. Someone who is the recipient of a miraculous healing such as this would naturally want to share that news with everyone who would listen. What amazes me the most in this passage is not simply his boldness, but that he shares what he knows to be true even when he does not know everything. I think we often hesitate to share the gospel because we are insecure about how many things we don't know. What if they ask questions about theology that I don't know how to handle? What if they ask me why there's evil and suffering in the world or or about science and the science, uh, the, the perceived conflict between scientific discovery, and religion? What if they ask me about the end of the world? What if I don't know how to answer certain arguments against Christianity? What if I don't have the answers to the questions that people have about the things that I believe? I take great comfort in the example that we have in this passage. I think that there are two reasons that John records multiple times in this passage that this man has been blind since birth. The first is that it, emphasized, it makes really clear to us how truly miraculous his healing was. It wasn't just that he had like really bad allergies one day and they cleared up and Jesus takes credit for the fact that he can now see. 
I think it makes very clear to us that Jesus is truly powerful. But the second reason is that this guy has only ever been a beggar from the very beginning of his life. He doesn't have a seminary degree. He's probably never been to school a day in his life. He hasn't studied Christology or soteriology or ontology or any other ology. Jewish law would have even prohibited him from participating in certain aspects of Jewish religious practice. Compared with these religious scholars, he is completely out of his league, intellectually speaking. Yet, he demonstrates in this passage that he has greater understanding and clearer spiritual sight than they do, despite their years and years of training. And the reason that's a comfort to me is that I realize we don't need to have every answer or perfect knowledge to tell people about Jesus. The fact is, I will never know everything or be able to answer every question that people might ask. Even the scholars with the most books and the best degrees will not know all that there is to know about Christ, or will have mined all the depths of the riches of the gospel, or will have compelling answers to every single question or challenge that people might have about the things they believe. Certainly, we should be growing in our understanding. We shouldn't be content to, to have a, a rudimentary or simple understanding of who our Savior is or what He's done for us. We see that taking place in this passage. This man's understanding is growing. Every time he opens his mouth, he seems to have discovered something new about Jesus. We shouldn't settle for a simplistic understanding of Christ's saving work. We shouldn't be lazy in thinking about theology or thinking critically about Scripture. But there is not, there will never be a certain moment or level understanding that suddenly makes us qualified to talk about our faith with people. What we see again and again in this passage is a man willing to simply tell people what he knows is true. And when his accusers challenge him and press him to explain the theological question that they have about Jesus working on the Sabbath, the man replies, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. 99% of Christ's people will not go to seminary or learn Greek so that they can read the book of John in its original language. God does not call all of us to that. But He does call us to witness to what we know is true. And you don't have to be an expert to be a witness. If you see a crime being committed, like if you see someone robbing a bank, you don't have to have advanced degrees in criminology to take the stand as a witness and tell people what you saw. And every Christian, regardless of how much theology we've studied, who knows that sin, is, sin and guilt before a holy God are real and are our condemnation, and that God's Son, Jesus Christ, is our salvation— who received God's wrath in our place, can at least say this, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I was lost, and now I am found. That does not mean it will be easy. It does not mean it won't come with a, without a high price. At the end of this chapter, the man who has been blind has been cast out of the synagogue for his persistence in talking about Jesus and his willingness to question the knowledge of these Jewish leaders. And afterward, Jesus seeks him out again. Knowing that they cast him out, Jesus goes to find him. And having found him, John says, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? 
Jesus is asking if he has placed his faith and his trust in the one that God has sent with divine authority. He's giving this man an opportunity to proclaim his faith, but he knows that this man has a limited understanding, which is why he had to seek him out again in the first place. And the man says, he illustrates the point, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? At this point, let's remember, he's assuming that Jesus is a prophet whose job it was to point people toward God. He does not yet know that he is face to face with God incarnate. He does not have all the answers. He doesn't see everything crystal clearly yet. But Jesus replies to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I am the son of man, he says. Not merely a prophet, I am the divine judge over all humanity, the one sent by the Father to do the will of the Father and to deliver those who belong to me. All of that loaded into the title, Son of Man. And in that moment of revelation, the man understands for the first time, he, he grasps in a new and deeper way who it is that he's talking to. And he uses the same word that he did before when he called Jesus Sir in verse 36. He uses that same, same word again, but now he uses it very differently because it is accompanied by belief and worship. And so in our translation of John chapter 9, Sir becomes Lord because the man has seen Jesus clearly for the very first time, and his response is immediate. The Greek word that's used here is a powerful one which conveys that this man literally fell down at Jesus' feet in humility and reverence. It's a vastly different response, as vastly different a response as we could possibly imagine from the way that the crowds responded to Jesus in chapter 8. They did not fall down at his feet in worship. They sought to silence him with stones and violence. And Jesus explains why in verse 39. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus is talking about spiritual sight. Some would see him and worship and some would be spiritually blind and reject him. I think the very beginning of this chapter helps us understand what Jesus means by this comment. One of the interesting details in this whole scene is how Jesus chooses to heal this man. I'm not just talking about how weird it is that he puts spit on this guy's face, because if we're honest, that's a little weird. I mean the fact that he makes mud, Tells, the, tells this guy to find his way to a pool on the other side of the city. It's strange that he would choose to do things this way. In Matthew 9, Jesus heals two blind men simply by touching them. In Matthew 12, Jesus healed a blind man with no comment about even doing that. But for some reason here in John 9, Jesus goes through a whole process to heal this man's blindness. It can't be because this was a, a tougher case that required more of Jesus' miraculous power. Because in just a couple chapters here in the book of John, Jesus will raise a man from the dead simply by speaking to him. If he had wanted to, Jesus could have given this man new eyes with a word, but he doesn't. And I think the reason is that he knew his actions would provoke a response. 
They would provoke the outrage of these Jewish legal authorities. He knew what he was doing, and he knew that what he was doing would be considered work forbidden on the Sabbath. He knew that he was sending a man across the city to this pool, something considered work in Jewish law, forbidden on the Sabbath. He chose to do these things to highlight a difference between those who reject him and those who would receive him with joy. The Pharisees, they jump all over Jesus' work on the Sabbath in this passage, I think exactly as Jesus knew that they would, because they are law keepers. They are justified in their eyes by their obedience. They even call themselves disciples of Moses in verse 28. They want to connect themselves as closely as possible with the one who recorded the law for God's people because they pride themselves on their obedience to that law. They see their safety before a holy God rooted in their obedience to that law. And so, just as we saw among the crowds who rejected Jesus in chapter 8, they don't think that they need Jesus at all. They don't think that they need a Savior at all. They think, instead, that he is a sinner, a false prophet, and a blasphemer, and a lawbreaker. And I think that John wants us to contrast that with the blind man that we meet at the beginning of this chapter. He is helpless, hopeless, and desperate. When Jesus anointed him and sent him to wash the mud off his eyes, the man obeyed because he had no other hope. Even if he thought, there's a 1% chance this will work, I'm going to take it. I'm going to do it, because this is the 1% that I've got. Those are the only two responses to Jesus, the only two. There are those who think that they see, who think that they know and, and do what is good, those who see Jesus perhaps as a teacher or a troublemaker or as one among many religious teachers throughout history, they will listen to Jesus as long as he does not challenge their self-worth or their preferences or their freedom. And there are those who know that they have nothing, that they have no hope, who receive the hope of Christ with joy because it's literally all that they have to cling to. One of those two responses points to or reveals spiritual blindness, an inability to see the truth of of human need, and the other has spiritual sight. What we see when we hold these two chapters of John, chapter 8 and chapter 9, next to one another, is that those who belong to Christ are those who humbly accept their need for Christ. In his explanation of the sign at the end of this chapter, Jesus explains that he came for judgment. And I think that what he means by that is that he came to expose the blindness of those who think that they don't need him, who think that they can see. And he came to give himself to those who know that they have no other hope. The difference between the crowds in chapter 8 And this blind man in chapter 9 is not that he was smarter or that he knew his Bible better. That can't possibly have been it. The faithful Jews who are in this city right now at this point in John are there because they've made a pilgrimage to observe a religious holiday. They are faithful Jewish worshipers who surely know God's Word better than he does. The difference is that he is humble. He accepts grace because he knows that he 
needs it. His humble attitude toward Jesus, we can see, is even more acute than we might recognize at first glance. For years, probably for decades, this man has suffered as a blind man at a point in history that dictated that he would only ever be a beggar. He's never had a job. He would never get married. He was barred from aspects of Jewish religious and community life and was assumed by most people to be deserving of his affliction for some assuredly terrible sin in his past that he committed, perhaps while he was still in the womb, apparently. His life was harder and full of more despair and heartache than we are probably able to fully understand. Yet, when Jesus says that he suffered it all so that God's work could be done, he doesn't respond in the way that I think many of us might. He doesn't insist on his rights or claim that he's been treated unfairly. In the end, he worships the one who is and has been sovereign over his blindness, who ordained his blindness, who determined when he laid out the plan of history, he said, this man will be blind. Because in humility, he came to know that what he received in Christ far outweighed any earthly comfort that he might have enjoyed had God planned things differently. His humility anticipates the humility of Jesus himself, who humbly stepped off of his throne to take on flesh and live a humble life. He would be unfairly accused of sin. People would question the circumstances of his past and his birth, which we saw in chapter 8, and he would suffer greatly in order that the works of God might be accomplished and the ultimate divine purpose of salvation for God's people would come to pass. This man's years of affliction and suffering and hardship as a result of his blindness and his humble response to Jesus give him a vantage point to behold Jesus in a way that the crowds in the temple simply could not. And in the end, Jesus says that it's this man who is truly able to see. The light has come for the lost. And only those who know that they're in darkness will rejoice to see it. Those who deny that they need it will be blind to it. They will live in darkness and go on living in darkness, confident that they are not. Here in chapter 9, it is because they are sure that they have justified themselves in God's courtroom by their strict obedience to the law. But in truth, they are just beggars at the temple gate along with everyone else. They are wandering the streets in the darkness, navigating with a flawed map and refusing to admit that they are lost. The message of John 9 for each of us is straightforward. If we refuse to accept our blindness, we will not receive the healing of Jesus with joy. If we insist that we are good people, we will not look to Jesus as a Savior. Just like the man in this scene, we, we don't need every answer or perfect knowledge to know that something is wrong, and then to go on to trust that Jesus is the one who can make it right. When we honestly face our need and the insidious corruption of sin, when we truly accept that we are hopelessly lost in the darkness, stumbling around and with no hope of saving ourselves, then we will see Jesus as He truly is, the Son of God who gives His life for ours, who came to give sight to the blind, grace to the humble, and His light 
to the lost. Let's pray together this morning. God, as we read this passage this morning, it's so easy um, to see ourselves in it and to recognize um, that there are two responses we might give uh, to you and to your grace. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you would give us eyes to see the truth, that you would convict us of the things that are ultimately wrong, that are broken, that are corrupted in each of us. Lord, that we would be brokenhearted to, to, to face the honest uh, truth about our sin and our rebellion against you. But Lord, allow us, each of us in that moment, to then rejoice to see you, to see the light that has broken into the darkness of our lives to come and give us new life. God, we are your people. It's only by your grace and your mercy, which you pour out for each of us, that we can say that this morning and we rejoice in it today. In the name of your Son, amen.